0: The Bane Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, marching orders for flying cars lead to metaphorical crash. Calliope and Terpsichore throw down in the bog of time with epic moves followed by light refreshment. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We talk with Mike Coopery this time on his book, Sins of Her Father. This is the second book in Mike's Privateer Andromeda series, featuring tough and smart ship captain Catherine Blackwood and her crew. This time Catherine transports an ousted leader back to a world that is about to fall into the clutches of the totalitarian Orlov Combine, which is a nasty fate, and it needs a bit of help with the resistance movement, including a ship with a railgun and a laser turret or two. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Lee Universe novel, Alliance of Equals. First, here's the news. March on, march on, ye hardcovers and original trade paperbacks of the month, and blow ye winds of reading pleasure. R, The March original hardcovers and trade paperbacks are upon us. Out next Tuesday, because Tuesday is the day for commentary apparitions and great tidings and book debuts in the month, uh, is A Call to Vengeance by David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Thomas Pope. This is the third book in the Manticore Ascendant series, a saga set 300 years before Honor Harrington, but in David Harrington's Honorverse, and featuring Royal Manticore Navy man Travis Long and uh, friends of his. After the disastrous attack on the Manticoran home system by forces unknown, the Royal Manticoran Navy, it's in its sort of infancy in this series, stands on the brink of collapse. A shadowy enemy, with the resources to hurl warships across hundreds of light years, seeks to conquer the Star Kingdom for reasons unknown, while forces from within Manticor's own government seek to discredit and weaken the Navy, for reasons very much known, their own political gain. It's up to officers like Travis Long and Lisa Donnelly to defend the Star Kingdom and the Royal Manticore Navy from these threats. But the challenge is greater than any they have faced before. Manticore has learned that the universe is not a safe place, but the Star Kingdom's enemies are also about to learn that it's dangerous to mess with Manticore. Also out is trade paperback Sins of Her Father by Mike Coopery. This is book two in the Privateer Andromeda series, and we'll have lots more about this novel from Mike himself in just a moment. It's a great space opera adventure story. And out in March is Star Destroyers. Edited by me, Tony Daniel, and Christopher Rocchio. In space, size matters. Boomers, ships of the line, star destroyers. The bigger the ship, the better the bang. From the dawn of history onward, commanding the most powerful ship has been a dream of admirals, sultans, emperors, kings, generalissimos, and sea captains everywhere. For what the intimidation factor alone doesn't achieve, a massive barrage from super weapons probably will. Thus it was and ever shall be even into the distant future. From the oceans of Earth to beneath the ice of Europa to the distant reaches of galactic empires, it is the great warships and their crews that sometimes keep civilization safe for the rest of us, but sometimes become an extinction-level event in and of themselves. Big, bold, edge-of-your-seat space opera and military science fiction. The idea of this was to ask all the Bane writers that I know to write a story for this, plus a lot of writers who are connected with Bane in some way, after we came up with the with the cool idea. The complete contributor list includes David Drake, Michael Z. Williamson, Mark Van Name, Steve White, Jody Lynn Nye, Brendan Du Bois, Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, Susan R. Matthews, Mike Cooperie, J.R. Dunn, Robert Butner, Christopher Rocchio, Dave Barra, Joel Presby, Gray Reinhardt. The only main writers not in there also wanted to write stories for it, but just couldn't fit it into their schedules. We might do another one someday. This one was so much fun, and it's, uh, it's a, an amazing list and some really great stories in there. So please check out Star Destroyers. Star Destroyers, edited by Tony Daniel and Christopher Rocchio. Sins of Her Father by Mike Coopery, and A Call to Vengeance by David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Thomas Pope are now out at booksellers everywhere. want well, to welcome Mike Coopery to the podcast. Hey, Mike.
2: Hello, everybody.
1: Mike Coopery is the author of debut science fiction novel, Her Brother's Keeper, um, as well as co-author with Larry Correa of, let me try that again, Mike Cooper is the author of the science fiction novel Her Brother's Keeper as well as co-author with Larry Correa of the best-selling Dead Six military adventure series novels including Dead Six, Swords of Exile, and Alliance of Shadows. Mike grew up in Michigan's Upper Peninsula and enlisted at the age of 17, uh, which I think is the Air Force, right Mike?
2: Uh, I was actually in the Army National Guard at that time. At that time. The
1: Air Force later. You uh, were in the Air Force later, where you were an explosive ordnance disposal technician um, overseas and did some uh, some cool stuff you've told us about before on the podcast. Served six years in the Army National Guard Um has worked as a has worked as a security contractor with several firms. Did a tour in Southwest Asia with a private military company, and is an NRA certified firearms instructor, as well as being the author of a new book out, uh, which is a sequel to her brother's keeper. That book is called "Sins of Her Father," and it is at booksellers everywhere. Um, so. Uh, once again, Mike. Just uh, Coopery, right? Is the way we should say your last name, and it's uh, Finnish.
2: I would, yes, I was. It's Finnish for the word copper, uh, which actually works because my grandfather was a copper miner from Finland. Uh-huh. So, props to you for trying to say it correctly. I uh, I stopped correcting people in the nineties. All
1: right, we'll just say it. Say it.
2: I've I've heard it, it's Kupere. I've heard every version of Kupere, Kupare, Kupere, Kupere, Now, Usually I just, that point, I'll just raise my hand and say, Yeah, I'm here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: But I think I'm going to have to update my uh, my writer bio copy a little bit. My NRA certified firearm instructor credits expired years ago. <laughs>
1: so. Well, uh, you probably could hit the broadside out of a barn still which is <laughs> more than some of us can do. A um, manager. <laughs> so uh, the, tell us the genesis of now, yeah, the genesis of the entire uh, sort of uh, Catherine Blackwood, uh, Privateer Andromeda series. You uh-huh. as, as was sort of a challenge that, that Tony or you put out to one another, right? How, tell us the genesis of this.
2: Well, in 2013, I, uh, spun up the courage to ask Tony if I could, uh, submit my own standalone novel.
1: Tony Wisecuff, my boss and publisher of Bain, is who we're talking about, of course.
2: I had just, I was in Germany at the time, and, uh, I had just finished the draft of Swords of Exodus, the second book in the Dead Six series with Larry, and, uh, I had ideas. So I, she said, okay, write me up a pitch. So I sent her a 15 page long story pitch and like a 22 page long world building document for for my space opera that eventually became her brother's keeper. Mm
1: -hmm. And then, uh, and, and this is a, a further iteration of, uh, of the, of Catherine's story, uh, sins of her father. How did you, um, you're, you're really good friends with Larry Correa. Um, I think Larry's called you his best friend. What, uh, how did you guys um, meet? Well,
2: well he, he should call me his best friend. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, I knew Larry before it was cool. A um, little hipster, hipster cred for you there. Uh, I met Larry in 2006. Actually, we were both uh, frequent posters on an internet gun board. Back in the days, before Facebook, that's how people talk to each other online. And uh, I moved to Utah in 2006 and uh, transferred a handgun through his gun store (laughs) at a time. Well, we got to talking. We got to be friends. Um, I wrote a story online, just kind of making it up as I went along. Larry jumped in, writing in the same story from another character's point of view. And that eventually became the draft of Dead Six. That's how we really got to know each other. So within a year, I was actually working in a gun store, selling guns, and we'd go shooting or instructors together, and uh, all that. But, so yeah, it was kind of of a lucky accident on my part. I never even had any aspirations to be a a real writer before that, honestly. I wrote occasionally for fun, but I never seriously considered that this is something I would do for... You know, money that people would pay me money for this. Sometimes I, I still struggle with that concept to be honest.
1: But <laughs> well, you tell some great stories. Um, <clears throat> for instance, uh, well, let's talk about the sins of her father a little bit. Um, where are we in uh, in Catherine Blackwood's uh, career at this point? As we as we begin the novel, we don't really start with Catherine. We start with a another. The main viewpoint character is Nick, um, although he is uh, one of Catherine's crew.
2: Yes. Um, uh, Nixon Armitage is the new executive. He becomes the new executive officer of the uh, Andromeda. The last executive officer was killed in the battle over Zanzibar in the first book. Spoiler alert. So, And that, that loss hit Catherine particularly hard. Um. She was, her XO was named Wolfram von Spandau. They were good friends. They had been together for a long time. And losing him hit her hard. And that wasn't the only crew member she lost in that battle either. Three people. On the the mission to Zanzibar, three people died. Many more were injured. So when the story starts, the Andromeda is planted on her adopted home world of Heinlein, which... Canon in fact is not actually named after Robert A. Heinlein. It's named after the explorer who found it, who claimed lineage to an ancient pre-space Earth philosopher. But that lineage has never been confirmed. Uh
1: (laughs) Aha. But there's another planet called Coventry. Or is that the... uh... Capital City. Oh, that's the Capital City, of course,
2: yeah. Uh, Heinlein, yeah.
1: We are on Heinlein,
2: yeah. Pure Pure coincidence, I assure you. (laughs) Um, in any case so when you have a ship on the ground not doing anything it's like being a truck driver and not driving or being a taxi driver and not driving you're not making any money Mm -hmm. problem is you can't just park a spaceship in your yard it requires a lot of maintenance a lot of upkeep and just the the storage fees the spaceport fees alone are can be a lot. This is not a. Uh, it's like having your own 747 parked at an international airport. You know, it's not going to be cheap. So, after some time on the, a couple of years planted, she decides it's time to get back into space, and she starts looking for work. Well, at the same time, meet, um Xander Krycek, who is the deposed president of the Colony World of Ithaca and he gets a message from his daughter asking him to come home
1: now what exactly but let's what exactly kind of ship is andromeda we call it the privateer um is it a warship is it a transport um,
2: ship it's it's the andromeda specifically is classified as a patrol ship it's in in, in book canon it's a it's from Winchell Chong Astronautical Industries, and it is a, um, a Polaris class. Ships like that are generally designed for governments of uh, space colonies to control their own system. And uh, it's sort of like a light, roughly an, an al- analogous to a light warship. Um, half, half warship, half coast guard cutter type thing like that. It is interstellar capable, but... She bought the ship. She did not, She inherited the ship from the previous captain um, who bought it surplus from a government contract that went under. So it's actually fairly high grade for a privateer ship. Many of them are very old. The Andromeda itself is about 50 years old. So it's it has some design features that make it uh, suited to the role that Catherine uses it. It's got crew berths for up to 30 passengers, which is a lot. These are individual um, like little pods that is basically your tiny, like one of those Tokyo coffin hotels That's your cabin. It also functions as a small life support pod. It's got an acceleration couch built into your bed in there so if the ship is going at 5G's, you're not getting smashed. You know? And that's about the only private space you get for the most part. So... Having that kind of crew capacity, even though the ship doesn't require a crew that big, gives her options. The ship is also armed. It has a rail gun, two rotary missile launchers and lasers. So it kind of works very well for the particular niche she's, she's using it in.
1: Mm. And Catherine is herself. Um, she is the daughter of a of, of rich... Uh... Uh, oligarch on uh, on another world who she's sort of estranged from right
2: yes um, her home world is Avalon um, Avalon was founded right before an event that's called the kind uh, it's called the long dark in uh, popular terms it was after the second interstellar war or after the first interstellar war when Uh, so much space infrastructure was destroyed in that conflict, and so many colonies were wiped out that much of humanity stopped being a spacefaring race. It was akin to the fall of the Roman Empire. So Avalon was settled right before this happens and then was on its own for hundreds of years. And it was tough. I mean, you're talking about a colony having to be completely self-sustaining, And there's no one else. They have no idea what's going on else in interstellar space. They were on their own, so it created a society that was kind of particularly conservative in a lot of ways, very stodgy, kind of Edwardian era Britain in a lot of ways. And Catherine comes from that. Her father is actually an aristocrat. He's uh, their society is not democratic. Um, individual uh, uh, stakeholders, basically, have control of a certain territory, and they're like the governor of that territory. And the citizens, you know, their job is managing their territory, sort of like the governor of a state. But you could argue that it's almost feudalism, but it's sort of a feudalist, neo-feudalism-capitalism hybrid type thing. But they survived that way for hundreds and hundreds of years. But one of the downsides to the society, particularly for Catherine, is they have ideas about the role of women in society that are not what we would think of here in 21st century America as being particularly hip. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It is more of a Edwardian-era England attitude towards the roles of women. And Catherine, like her mother, was never really happy with that. So... As a young person, as a young adult, she was able to successfully lobby to get herself admitted to her, her government's space flight academy for their, for their military service. Now, women had served in the Avalonian military before during the previous war, but that was just seen as, a, as a, a wartime contingency. You know, it was later on, they got frowned upon mm-hmm. as shouldn't have been necessary type of thing. She actually did fairly well. In the academy, not exceptionally well, but well enough where she was on her her initial her initial cruise on one of the, the the military's patrol ships. But during this time, her father became fell under a lot of pressure from some of the more conservative elements of the of the high council. You know, his peers. They were worried. She had become something of a media celebrity during this, and they were worried that it was going to start a democratic movement. A, not only, first let's have votes and then let's have women vote. They were worried about this because that might mean losing their power and destabilizing the colony. So her father, which he later regretted, bent to their pressure and had her pulled from the academy. After, at that point, she basically ran away from home and became a privateer. She joined with the crew of the Andromeda as a junior flight officer and worked her way up from there.
1: Yeah, and so she's she's very um, she's at home in space. That's her her real home, it seems. Um, and so, all right. So most of the action in Sins of Her Father*, um, it's not actually uh, Catherine's father that <laughs> is the center here. It's uh, another character in the book, Edissa Masozi. Um, and her father. Um, is a is a fellow who was known as the uh, the butcher of Sargusport, right? Um, yes. And what happened? Her father. That led to his exile at the beginning of the book.
2: Um, her father was the was the Xander Crychek, the fellow I previously mentioned. It was never publicly disclosed that uh, who her, her her true lineage was never publicly disclosed. That's her, that's. That's revealed in the book, but before the story. Starts, yeah,
1: it gets uh, it gets revealed far, fairly up front, so we're not really giving a, a big spoiler moment away. I don't think.
2: Um, the uh, fifteen years before the book starts on the colony world of Ithaca, they're having all kinds of internal strife. That colony has had a king since its founding, and most of the kings were, you know. Okay, acceptable, not tyrannical. They managed the colony well, but the the last king in the line, he was a different matter. He kind of started to go crazy. It had to do with the uh, his attempt to commune with the native population of Ithaca, who are also called. I mean, there's the human Ithacans and then there's the native Ithacans. So it's. The native Athenians were there when the humans got there, mm-hmm. and he tried to commune with them, with their leaders, which they do through a sort of a telepathic connection. Well, in order to make this work, you have to have kind of a has to be kind of predisposed toward it. It's a, it's a trait. It's not something anyone can do. Even with the they give you an elixir, sort of like a drug that you drink to help uh, open your mind up, but. If you don't, if you don't have the knack for it, if you're not predisposed to it, and you attempt it, if you try to force it. It's very much, I guess, it could be described as almost being mind raped. It's very traumatic, psychologically damaging. And the last king attempted this against advice, against the advice of alien elders, and failed. His wife was so, who was with him, was so affected she actually killed herself, and relations with the aliens kind of went downhill from there. This was one of the... This kind of started the king's spiral into madness. He became increasingly paranoid. He, he had felt that he had been set up, that that was an, it made possibly an assassination attempt, and began to cause discord. There had always been like a traditional split between the the northern part of the colony and the people who live in the jungles in the south. And that, that uh, rift grew wider during this period, and it started with strife and fell into civil war. And it was during this point that uh, Xander Krychek, the Royal Guard at the time, um, he was a colonel in the military, actually, staged the coup. The king was overthrown, and uh, Xander was installed by the so-called Revolutionary Council as the interim president, and... Um, he didn't ask to be put in that position but they, they chose him. So he was put in the thrust into the position of having to bring peace and order back to his colony because it was outright war at this point. There was an outright revolt. The aliens, the aliens who had their technology was primitive but there were millions of them and they were attacking and people were scared. And two sides the royalists and the republicans were fighting each other. So there was, Xander had to bring order to all this. Well, he did. He was successful. He was the first leader since the colony's founding, since the, the, uh, the first leader since the colony's founding to successfully negotiate a peace treaty with the alien, the alien tribes. This is very rare in, in this universe. You know, this sort of thing almost never happened. So it was, it was a momentous occasion. He brought peace and order to the colony for the most part. But there were still some holdouts. Um, royalists, you know, people still loyal to the crown, people clutching to their own power. And one of their holdout cities was a place called Sargasport. Well, the pressure was on. Xander Krychek himself was nearly killed in an assassination attempt that attempted claim to claim the life of his wife. And He was angry. He was under pressure to get this done. And instead of assaulting the city with his soldiers, which would have been bloody house-to-house fighting, resulting in mass casualties from both sides, he simply destroyed the city with a nuclear weapon and uh, killed about 20,000 people. Um, It ended the war. That move did end the war. But it was so shocking that the people kind of began to turn on him. So his own Revolutionary Council, they saw an opportunity, and they kind of staged a coup against the guy who staged the coup. His own daughter, Odissa, um, was on board with that at the time because she didn't think that he was mentally fit to continue being the president. Um He destroyed a city on their own colony with a nuclear weapon. You know, that's a lot of people that died. They were going to hang him, but she convinced the council to simply let him go into exile. He ends up going to Heinlein because Heinlein functions in a sort of Switzerland. They're, They're neutral. They're not a member of the Interstellar Concordia. They don't have expedition treaties. So it's a place where somebody like that can go to be left alone. And that's all he really wanted. He left. He lived on Heinlein alone. He wrote a book and basically expected to be forgotten until one of his old advisors shows up with a message from his daughter.
1: So, and the message involves something we should uh, probably set up, which is that um, in addition to the Concordant uh, concordiate there is sort of an evil empire, which is the Orlov Combine. Um, Tell us about these bad guys.
0: The Orlov
2: Combine, I I originally conceived them as kind of a space North Korea. I I know that sounds cheesy, but I I, I fully admit to being a hack, so deal with it. Um, They are a reclusive, militaristic, Police and surveillance state, the likes of which have never been seen before in human history. Um, they were also left on their own during the the long dark, the interregnum. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Between the fall of the Second Federation and the rise of the Concordia. And their world, Orlov, is not a particularly hospitable world. It was settled with a mining colony. was never intended to be a place where people would live it's a volcanic world it's kind of like Mordor you know and it's it bred a harsh people with a harsh survival instinct and the way they focused that survival instinct was to go completely I guess you could call it collectivist right it's very Orwellian I I did took a lot of inspiration from 1985 1984 on that and
1: uh well, for instance, their ships have political officers who are, yes, who, who are, are, and they have these sort yes. of uh, fanatical AIs as well, right?
2: Yes, we we just, we meet the Orlov Combine in the first book, but we don't ever see what it's like on one of their ships until the second book, and all their ships, even their their trade vessels, have a have an AI core that acts as sort of a backup political officer. It's, it watches the crew, it monitors their activity, and it is programmed to measure for disloyalty. And if it detects disloyalty, it's little. Um, it has sort of like uh, camera turrets that kind of are extendable arms that can come out of the ceiling in different cabins in the ship. And those are equipped with lasers. It can, and if it feels it needs to, it will execute its own crew. <laughs> mm. So they nice. are kept, especially their interstellar crews. They are kept under a very, on a very short leash because, you know, they have a high defection rate. Mm. There are two classes of people in the Orlov Combine. Well, three if you count like the political class. But you have the regular citizens, and then you have what they call the Proles. The Proles are mostly cloned. They, they population farm to get their numbers up. They're bred for specific traits. Be tough not too bright, hard workers, do what they're told. They have an entire population of <coughs> all-witted slaves they have been breeding for centuries. It's, it's horrendous, if you think about it. Well, the regular people, you know, they have more of their faculties, as it was described by a defector in the first book. So they're monitored. They have what's called an electronic comrade. It's a little box that is mounted to your skull about on your temple, and uh, it stays there for the rest of your life. And it records and broadcasts everything you do. It's just a part of life. It's something they don't even think about because it's always there. Mm-hmm. If you're seeing, if your behavior is raises any red flags, you're brought in, you know, for questioning, re-education, liquidation, whatever the state decides necessary. Your entire purpose is to serve the state. You are a cog in their big machine, and that is all you are. So it is is—it's evil. I mean, it's, it's like, it is kind of like North Korea turned up to the ridiculous level. It, it's horrendous.
1: What happens when the Orlov Combine uh, takes over a planet, which there or a planet decides to enter into an agreement with them, which Ithaca seems to be doing? Or at least the government.
2: Yes, that is that is not—that is generally considered to be not advisable. See, that Revolutionary Council on Ithaca, after they expelled Zaner Krychek, well, they weren't particularly as politically astute. They didn't—they did not know how to fix the mess that they had created. So in their attempts, things got worse and worse, and it got to the point where people were in poverty. People were going hungry. These are things that are almost unheard of in the modern world in the space age, you know, and yet it was happening. And they were afraid that if they didn't do something to fix the problem and get a whole consolidate their power, they'd be lined up against the wall next. So they reached out to about the only power in space that would be willing to talk to them, and that was the Orlov Combine. The Orlov Combine promised them all kinds of things technology. You know, they have machines that can and raise and distribute food, they're experts at resource distribution and making sure everyone is clothed and housed and fed and find a job, you know. Their propaganda, you know, there's no poverty on Orlov, there's no inequality, there's no there's no rich or poor. It's everybody has a purpose. Everybody is a happy contributing citizen and everything works and they all work together like like the Smurfs. That's hmm. that's how they pitch it, you know. Well, you know, people who are smart don't necessarily buy that propaganda. But the Revolutionary Council were desperate and they were scared, and they thought if they wrote it, wrote the treaty, so it was so the treaty they're interested in signing is uh, sort of like a mutual defense pact, right? They would get supplies from the Orlov Combine, uh, relief aid, food, equipment like that, and in return. The Orlov Combine would, you know, have a, have their advisors and their military. They have a few military bases really close to Concordia's space. And that supposedly that was as far as it would go. The colony was promised that it would retain its own independence. Well, that's not going to happen. Any more than the Soviet satellite states retained independence from Moscow.
1: Yeah. It's Or those and, any who make deals with the devil <laughs> Just doesn't work out for them. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Um, the, the Orlov Combine once they get their their mechanical tentacles into a planet, they're never going to let it go. They don't have a lot of holdings outside of their own system, so if they actually got their hands on one, that would be a huge deal for them.
1: So, um, <laughs> Xander Krysik's, uh daughter, Masozy, Masozi. Um, Breaks with this, but she realizes this is not a good idea, right? And um, yes, but and sh- now she's kind of up against the wall because she has to oppose this. Um, and she seeks out the natives as well as sending sending a message to her dad. Oh yes. Um, and and what is that encounter like? And what are the? Tell us more about the Ithacan natives.
2: The Ithacans are. They're kind of described in the book as being like a sawn-off brontosaurus. Mm-hmm. You know, they're vaguely, vaguely saurian, bipedal. They got uh, zygodactyl hands. Um, dark eyes. They're tall, about seven or eight feet tall, with a breathing hole on top of their head like a brachiosaurus. And uh, they're pretty reclusive. They, before, during Xander Krycek's time, they, op- they traded freely with the humans exchanged goods and uh, got along with them generally well. And their areas were kind of off limits to people. They were like their reservations, except, their, except more like the humans had their reservations, the natives had the rest of the planet. You know, they, because the natives greatly, greatly outnumber the humans. But during the, after Xander Krycek was exiled, all those treaties were uh, thrown out. Mm. They were no longer allowed to trade with people. With humans. They weren't allowed to cross their territory. Okay. They started to be against them, even.
1: So that. Uh, repeat that. Sorry.
2: I said there they were even attacks against them. They were blamed for some of the problems because they made a convenient scapegoat for failing rulers. You know,
1: mm-hmm.
2: just like in many in many tin pot dictatorships, they find some underclass to blame to problems on, like the Kurds in Iraq or. So on and so forth. So that, that's the kind of role they fell into. Yeah. So Adissa approaches them
1: and, they're, and says, "They're at—I mean, they're, they're at a seemingly primitive level, right? To at least they appear to be."
2: Yes, they. Their origins are not really known to most of the citizens of Ithaca. It's not known where they came from. Their, their genetic makeup does not seem to match. That of Ithaca, there are theories they were not native to that planet, but their technology level was so low that no one could figure out how they would have gotten there if they weren't native, because they were effectively at the Stone Age. They lived in tribes. They were uh, nomadic. They didn't really raise crops. They didn't build cities or monuments. You know, they didn't they they learned to use human weapons just fine if they could adapt them for their differing physiology, but most of their own weapons were bows and spears. So they were very much at a Stone Age level. But there were still millions of them, and they could be trained to use human weapons. So Editha has the idea that to ask them for their support in her uh, counter-revolution... Because she needs it. She needs all the help she can get. And she she approaches them with the plea that if you don't help us do this, the Orlov Combine is going to come here and they're going to wipe you all out. Which is a very real fear. That's... The Orlov Combine... The Orlov Combine barely made it through the Second Interstellar War, which was against an alien race colloquially colloquially known as the Maggots. Um they have a very xenophobic attitude towards non-human species. So far, the maggots were the only space fairy non-human species ever encountered, and they nearly exterminated humanity. So the Orlov Combine would not treat the Ithacans well. Mm-hmm. would be enslaved, experimented on, or possibly just exterminated.
1: So, uh, and, and this... Um, she meets one of the... She, eventually becomes uh uh friends uh with with one of the uh Ithcan natives named Follower of the Storm or Stormy. Yes. And uh they he introduces her to uh, this sort of uh telepathic uh connection and she she it deepens the relationship between humans and Ithacans in a way it never has been before or at least has the possibility of that.
2: Yes, um, they discover that Edissa has is predisposed towards being able to open her mind up to telepathic communication. She actually gets that from her father, but she didn't know that her father had that trait too. Um, so she communes with the elders, some of the elders of the alien of the aliens, and one of their secret holdfasts. Where she finds, where she's taken there, and she finds that there is a lot more to them than meets the eye. Yeah. And when she communes with them, she asks for their help. She shows them the Orlov Combine. She shows them what they do. And in that plea, they agree. They agree to help her.
1: Yeah. So that is uh, that's that's a cool section of the of the novel that's taking place as we're we're as Xander and uh, Catherine Blackwood is speeding. Toward Ithaca. Um, a couple of other characters. Well, tell us a little bit about. Um, uh, we want we'll to talk about Nick Nixon, Armitage, and Marcus Winchester, who are two um, important characters in the book as well. Um, who? Okay. Who is Nixon? We see a lot of what happens through his eyes, and he's kind of a fun guy to. Yeah. Uh, he's happy go lucky in a way.
2: Yeah. Nixon is. Honestly, a lot of the inspiration for Nixon was um, Lone Star from Spaceballs. That's how he looks in my imagination. So anyone listening to this, that's his canon appearance. Um, He is a lifelong spacer. He's been on a spaceship since he was a kid. Yeah, And he loves it. And he's been privateering for a while. But his last ship, um, the Madeline Drake did not come to a good end. The opening scene, in fact, we meet Nixon, and he's on the Madeline Drake with his dying captain who was severely injured in a battle they couldn't win. And in choosing to engage that hostile ship was a tactical mistake the captain made and it cost him the lives of several of his crew members and his own life, and his ship was nearly destroyed. Well, when the captain, the captain passes away, Nixon assumes command, and he... Then it's to limp the ship back to port, get repaired enough to get home. And once there the uh they didn't complete their mission, so they didn't get their final payout. So the ship is all and all the assets are auctioned off to pay off all the outstanding debts. So Nixon is left with pretty much nothing. He's got his savings but nothing else. So he's been spending that the been over a year he's been saying a time since kind of being a little bit of a lothario a gentleman of leisure if you will he's a womanizer to a certain extent he's just been kind of he likes to drink he likes to party he likes to bring home different girls and doesn't bother to remember their names sometimes he's that kind of guy but a lot of that is him just it's his way of coping with being restless he has survivor's guilt he, he's bored. He wants to go back out into space, but in some ways, he's almost scared too. He won't to admit that to himself, of course, but not at, at first. But
1: yeah, he needs to get back on the. Uh... I
2: don't want you been thrown that hard. Yeah, essentially. So he starts looking for work. Though he decides he's had enough. At the beginning of the book, he's looking for work, and he sees that the Andromeda has an opening for an executive officer. And it is through this job ad that uh, Nixon and Captain Blackwood come to be acquainted. Marcus Winchester is a returning character from the first book. He's a decorated military veteran, fought in several conflicts. Well, he got out of the service and used his bonus to emigrate to the Concordia Frontier World of New Austin, where he has lived with his family ever since, his wife and his daughter. He... Wanted to live on a less populated world because the planet he lived on, Hayden, was an overcrowded, crime-ridden, um, cesspool in a lot of ways. Whereas New Austin, the whole planet only has a couple million people on it. Most of the, the terraformed zone where everyone lives is roughly twice the size of the state of Alaska. There's plenty of room. You can have get landed for cheap. And he got a job as a law enforcement officer or colonial marshal where he's been working ever since. Well, during the last book, he was recruited by Captain Blackwood to help get her brother back, who was abducted on the far-flung world of Zanzibar. And he put a team together to help him do this. He made a lot of money doing that, came home, went back to work as a cop. Well, we, when we meet Marcus, he's on a case. And things don't go as planned. He has a run-in with a uh, uh, Concordia office of secret intelligence officer who's running a deep cover operation that Marcus accidentally blows, and she is not happy about this, and puts pressure on the colonial government to basically um, fire him and his fire Marcus and his partner Wade. So he's in a bad spot. He's got another baby on the way. No, no, he's got a, he's got a young boy. Next, excuse me. His his wife was pregnant in the first book. Now he's got a baby son. Um, He's suddenly out of a job.
1: And he's got a daughter who wants to be a starship captain.
2: uh, Oh, yes. Oh, yes. His daughter, Annabelle, had dreams of being a spacer. Well, she got to go with him on the Andromeda in the first book. That was a sort of a sort of a deal to keep her out of jail because she got into an altercation with another girl who poisoned her horse and she beat the crap out of this other girl, almost killed her. So instead of sending her to juvenile detention, she was released to the custody of Captain Blackwood and went on this uh on the mission to Zanzibar with him. Now arguably that wouldn't be acceptable in our current modern day society, but in Previous generations, things like that were more common. So I decided they would be in the far-flung future as well on certain planets. So she loved it. She loved being part of the crew, even though she just assisted the assisted the cargo master. She wasn't like a—you know, she just did on-the-job training. And then she got back. She had gotten enrolled in the Space Flight Academy on New Austin. Well, that's not cheap either. it's not inexpensive. So— Marcus is in a spot where his daughter, he doesn't know if he's gonna be able to keep his daughter in school. He's out of a job, and things are kind of on the downturn for him. Well, fortunately for him, Captain Blackwood is on her way back to New Austin because she accepts the contract from Xander Krycek to get him off of planet and get him home to Ithaca. But his the attempt there is an attempt on his life. At their their first face-to-face meeting, as a matter of fact, he's nearly killed. And it's a member of his own own staff that had come to bring him back. So they didn't know who they could trust. They weren't willing to trust any of the crew of the ship that brought them there. So he kind of sneaks away on board the Andromeda, and Catherine goes to the one place where she knows she can find some bodyguards that she can trust, and where there is not... Hardly any possibility of there being a uh, any ithacan spies in waiting, and that's New Austin. And once she arrives, she offers Marcus another job. Mm. So I kind of I was able to get the band back together for that.
1: Yeah, and he's um he's basically her space marine dude. He's he's her her yeah. planetary warfare and operations guy.
2: Basically, I mean. You know, she has a security officer on board the ship who's a who's a military police veteran, you know, but the the crew is not trained for ground combat. You can't just take these guys who are technicians and specialists and hand them guns and send them on a rescue mission or send them to be bodyguards. Yeah. So Catherine is smart enough to know when you need to know to know when you need to outsource. So for things like that she does. Yeah.
1: And Marcus is just a he's he's a lot of fun. He's my He's he a, a deep character. He's a deep thinker um, uh, for being such a uh, for being stu- such a gunslinger <laughs> as he is in the book as well.
2: Uh, I mean, he's 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 very much a uh, very much made him into a sort of a a John Wayne cowboy persona, you know, in, in fitting with the theme of the planet he lives on. But. You know, he, he does come from a military special operations background, and he was a warrant officer. There's a lot of that's not an easy thing to lead men in a situation like that. It requires intelligence and being able to think on your feet. So, you know, he's not—he he, he, he might sound like a hick, but he's, uh, you know, he's actually very thoughtful. He puts a lot of thought into his plans and the execution, them,
0: yeah.
2: uh, which is good. That's what keeps him and his team alive. Yeah.
1: And he's very attached to his wife and daughter and um in furthering their uh the family's interest.
2: Yeah, he's a when I you know, when I um came up with this character, I was far away from home and from the people I loved. And I kind of put that into him when he originally was going to leave his wife and daughter behind. Well, even when his daughter got to go with him, it's still that that wanting to take care of his family, you know, the wanting to do the right thing for the people who are counting on him. The wanting to protect his daughter. Those are those are his primary drivers. But at the same time, he wants to protect his daughter, but he doesn't want to try to smother her. He wants her to he wants her to do the thing she wants to do and grow in the person she's going to be. He's not like a helicopter parent. So he's kinda of caught in this in both books, he's kinda of caught in the situation where he's trying to Protect her, but he's also trying to nurture her. So, yeah, it works out for her.
1: Yeah,
2: Elle comes into her own as an adult,
1: like a lot of parents. Um, so um, yeah. What uh, what are you working on at the moment, Mike?
2: I am working on right now a sort of po- po- let me see if I can describe this a sort of post-apocalyptic alien bounty hunter story. Um, the bounty hunter is not an alien. The bounty hunter hunts aliens. The setup is there was an attempted invasion of the Earth. It was, uh, despite horrendous losses and many, many cities being nuked from space, uh, human kind was able to fend off the attackers who retreated to Mars. Well, when they retreated to Mars, they left a lot of them behind. Um, they're, they're not from Mars. They just, that was the next best planet. So... He just kind of went up there to regroup um, so a lot of the aliens were left behind both their soldiers their worker cl- their worker classes their invasive species they've dropped all over the earth some of which are weaponized and they alien human hybrids that they created to be kind of like a bridge between them and humanity um, well the government, the governments of the world, the remaining governments, are focusing almost all of their effort on reconstruction and building defenses because they think the aliens are going to come back. So it's in a panic, early 50s Cold War type thing where they're trying to rapidly rebuild the militaries of the world when they thought the war was over, you know? Well, that doesn't leave a lot of resources for things like domestic law enforcement and and uh, keeping the order. And plus there's, you know, there's, the United States in, the, in this world is almost in the grips of a depression just because so many cities were destroyed and half the population was killed. And then you have the problem of these alien beings running around. Um, a lot of times they keep to themselves, but people don't. They don't, nobody wants them around because, you know, they killed half of humanity. And um, their warrior caste is actually quite dangerous. So they subcontract out to individuals who become... Uh, licensed extraterrestrial recovery officers who go out and capture or kill these aliens and are paid bonuses for doing so. Um, The way it's set up is you have to be a licensed recovery officer to legally engage in this sort of activity. They don't want regular cops doing it. They don't want every Joe Schmo out there trying it because it's dangerous. Some of their weapons are advanced, and they don't want them falling into the wrong hands, so they say. And they want control of that genetic material because there are other actors out there who are trying to get a hold of these aliens to try to exploit their their technology, their genetics, their genetic engineering capabilities especially. So there the is a law set up so that if, like police, if they encounter one of these aliens, they're allowed to defend themselves and engage it to prevent destruction, or prevent loss of life and damage of, damage of property, but... Their primary thing is to cordon it off and call for a recovery officer. Sort of like how when when soldiers find an IED on the battlefield, you know, when they try to when they try to clear it themselves, very often they don't know what they're doing and they get killed because they're not trained for that. So they were instructed to instead wait for EOD, cordon secure, and wait for EOD. So that is sort of the model these alien recovery officers work on.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds really cool. It sounds, um, uh, I don't know, Men in Black cross with uh, Monster Hunter uh, series, something like that. Oh, uh,
2: it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of, I kind of, it's kind of a Western. Yeah. In a lot of ways. I mean, well, I, I'm setting. It's it, I'm in the. It it's
1: a post-apocalyptic world, huh?
2: A post-apocalyptic Western. Force with uh, aliens.
1: Well, pretty cool. Um, we'll. We'll have to wait for that, but right now out everywhere is Sins of Our Fathers at Booksellers by Mike Coopery. Yeah. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for uh, talking to us about uh, Sins of Our Father and, uh and what's going on with you.
2: Okay, hey, thank you very much.
1: This is another entry in Alliance of Equals a Liaden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior, and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, Clan Corval desperately needs to re-establish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, Master Trader Sean Yos Galen and Corval's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But reestablishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself Denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the d o i mounted armed attacks on others of Corville's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty Oscalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age and perhaps her very life is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals.
0: Priscilla cried aloud, hand outstretched to snatch at insubstantial fingers, and woke, sitting upright in her bunk, face wet with tears. She drew a shuddering sigh. It was the dream. The same dream. Twice now it had woken her, twice now leaving her sick and shaken and not quite certain if it were a true dreaming or only remarkably realistic. To dream a death was never easy. To dream the death of her life mate's daughter and heir, that was disturbing in the extreme. Priscilla sighed, threw back the blanket, and slid out of bed. The decking was cold against bare soles as she crossed to her closet, and withdrew a sweater and a pair of soft pants. A glance at the clock showed that her sleep shift was three quarters done, and in any case, she was done with sleep. She crossed the room, laid her hand against the doorplate and a moment later was in the captain's office, touching the hot pot for tea. When the cup was full, she took it to the couch and curled into the corner, feet tucked under her. Sipping, she looked around the room, its lines and contents softened by the low lighting. This had been Sean's office when, friendless, she'd first come aboard the passage years ago. Before Sean, it had been his father's office. Er Ertom Galen had held two Melantes on the dutiful passage, captain and master trader. When she came aboard, Sean had held those dual roles as his father's heir. Plan B had altered that, as it had altered so very much. Sean had been separated from the ship, She, the first mate, had risen properly to captain in the emergency. But when Ship and Sean had been reunited at last, he had not taken up the captain's duty, instead placing it formally and firmly among her melanti, while he took up the melanti of a master trader with both hands. It had been a wise move. Plan B, again, having altered the usual manner of their lives. Plan B, she thought, sipping her tea, having altered lives, even more than the manner of them, and no lives so definitely as those of Korval's children, sent to shelter at Runig's Rock. Had her life proceeded in its normal and usual fashion, Patty Yosgallan would have come into her gifts in a controlled environment, taking such time as had been needful, rather than pushing those same gifts away and creating for herself and everyone around her an environment fraught with uncertainty and danger. It was rare, Priscilla thought, that a nascent witch was destroyed by the advent of her powers, though it did happen. There were records of such events at the temple where she had been maiden and trained to stand as Moonhawk's vessel. Lena admitted that the healers also had records of such events. Very few, Priscilla, Lena had said. But there have always been those who are too powerful to live. And what that might have to do with Paddy Yos Galan, Priscilla very much feared to learn. Perhaps that was what the dream was showing her, that accepting her gifts would change Patty's life yet again. If she were powerful, she might well be reft from the life she wished most to embrace. She might become strange to herself, dead, or so it might be said, to her former life. That, would be unfortunate. Paddy so much wished to be a pilot of Corval and a master of trade. Still, she was young and might adjust to a new life. For that was the best way to think of such things, as acquiring a new life, though new lives sprouted from the ashes of old lives. And yet, The dream had not been couched in the imagery of life, of rebirth. The dream was dark and fearful, and her contact with Patty a tangle of anguish and confusion. Priscilla had reached out her hand, reached out with her own, and perhaps even with Moonhawk's gift. And the girl was gone. Not distant, not unconscious, nor oblivious. Gone as if she had never been. Even death rarely cut a life down so completely. Often there remained something, a breath of radiance that danced joy for the benediction of freedom before it faded, though it was never lost. The dream, the dream proposed not merely death then, but annihilation. And she had dreamed it twice. What I tell you three times is true. She drew in a deep breath, one hand leaving the teacup and settling on her abdomen. The goddess had spoken to her. For one who had been trained as a priestess, there could be no mistaking the voice of the goddess. It is time, daughter. The soul who is to become your child is eager for life. She had been filled with joy, hearing both the voice and the message. Surely a child was welcome and precious. Alone in the captain's office, Priscilla shook her head. Gods were chancy. Gods had their own necessities. Gods, even the goddess herself, harking back to the old histories, sometimes forgot that among flawed humans, one child was not the same as another.
1: That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and the deactivated but still potent remains of a Level 3 supernova that he helped to diffuse before it could take out a galaxy, and the bravos and huzzas of space opera fans and action-adventure enthusiasts everywhere to Mike Coopery, author of Sins of Her Father. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.